Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. The Parting Shots Podcast is brought to you by Trophy Case, the app created for athletes by athletes. Downloaded today, available for iOS and Android users in your app store. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Giese, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me. We have another great show for you. I'll have interviews with Iowa basketball freshman Patrick McCaffrey and his father, former Sienna coach Fran McCaffrey, from Monday's Coaches vs. Cancer Basketball at the Albany Capital Center. I'll also speak with Joseph Gerard III, the former Glens Falls basketball and football standout who is now at Syracuse, and Syracuse basketball assistant coach Jerry McNamara, who are also at Monday's event. I'll step out of the sports comfort zone with one of the stars of Whose Line Is It Anyway? Colin Mockery, who will talk about his show at Rivers Casino on Friday. And Daily Gazette sports editor Mike Kelly stops by for his weekly spot on high school football. Well, last week, the New York Mets fired manager Mickey Calloway after two seasons, despite having the Mets in contention for a National League wildcard berth. I spoke with two people who follow the Mets closely to get their thoughts on the firing. Tim Healy covers the Mets for Newsday. And Jim Duquette is a studio analyst for SNY, and he's also host of Power Alley, weekdays on Sirius XM's MLB Network Radio. First up is Tim Healy. Tim, I appreciate you uh, coming on for a few minutes to talk about the uh, Mickey Calloway situation. Anytime, I'm happy to. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, it was a few days after the end of the regular season that the Mets decided to part ways with uh, Calloway. Was it surprising? Because uh, considering the team, you know, it was really up until the final week in the hunt for a wild card spot. Yes, you're right. They had a great second half, and the team should definitely commended, be commended for that. But the way I looked at it was, uh, well, I guess to answer the question, bottom line was no, it wasn't surprising that McCallery was fired because I looked at it, I took a step back from the second half and thought, okay, what were the expectations that the Mets had, that Brody Van Wagenen had, that the fan base had coming into the season. And really, Brody in particular talked a big, big game, and the Mets expected this to be a playoff team. And despite the progress they made in the second half and compared to 2018, they weren't a playoff team. Now, when you combine that with a disappointing first year under Mickey Calloway last year and the fact that uh, the GM who hired Mickey, Sandy Alderson, was, is long gone from the organization. Um, you know, Mickey's uh, face is written on the wall late in the season. I mean, if, if the Mets happened to do, if they did make the uh, playoffs, would that have saved his job? <laughs> that is a fascinating question, and I, I can't say with certainty. I think uh, a, play, a wild card bid and a loss, and let me put it this way. Late in the season, as they were in the race and the playoffs were a possibility, my view was, and this is more of a gut thing than anything somebody told me, but I thought they needed to get to at least the division series uh, to save Mickey's job, but uh, it ended up not coming down to that. I mean, the timing, I mean, it seemed like if he was going to get fired, it would have been right around late June. And, you know, unfortunately, you were involved in you know, the incident with Callaway and Jason Vargas. And then there was the uh, Vargas not no apology, and then it took two press conferences for 
uh, Callaway to apologize for the incident that happened after the game in Chicago. And, you know, there was a stretch. That was a stretch where they were, you know, losing straight. They got swept four games by Philadelphia. It seemed that that would have been the time to you know, maybe make a move. Why did the Mets, why did Brody wait until the end of the season when he maybe could have made the mood, mood, uh, move back then? Yeah, there were a bunch of chances, not only late June, but when they got swept by the Marlins in Miami in May or at the All-Star break when they were 10 games under. You know, there, there were plenty of chances uh, if the Mets wanted to make a move for them to actually make a move. And there are two, two possibilities there the way I see it. One is, you know, by the time they got to around halfway in the season, late June, early July, uh, maybe the Mets just didn't think a change to Jim Riggleman really would, would have changed anything. Uh, but two, the earlier they fired Mickey, the earlier the attention would have been more squarely focused on Brody Van Wagen and Wilpons, who, you know, especially at that point in the season, their offseason looked terrible. Um, pretty much none, none of the moves besides J.D. Davis at that point had worked out. Now, in, in the month since then, the offseason doesn't look quite as bad, even though the Robinson can know Edwin Diaz trade still still looks like a mess, but Justin Wilson had a good season when he was healthy. Wilson Ramos had a big second half offensively. Uh, J.D. Davis really established himself as part of a, a core member of the team probably moving forward. So um, things look a little better now in terms of the offseason, but had the Mets gotten rid of Mickey in those moments back then, um, you know, Brody would have taken a lot more heat and, the Mets try to deflect that. <laughs> and you can't forget Pete Alonso, the year he had this incredible rookie season. He looks like a, a keeper for this team. He is, yeah, big time. He, he's a lot of fun to watch, and he's a lot of fun to talk to, frankly. He's, uh, it probably comes across in his TV interviews as well, but he's just a very genuine and enthusiastic person. Um, just very excited to be in the majors, which you don't really see from all of the players that come through. Um, but he, you're right, he means a lot to the Mets and probably will for a long time. What did Callaway do well and what did he not do well as the manager for uh, the Mets for this team? Well, what he did do well isn't super clear. Brody Van Wagenen credited him with keeping the clubhouse together. Um, I remember a particular time talking to Brody the first day of the second half, the Mets were back in Miami, and Brody said Mickey would absolutely be the manager for the rest of the season, and so that yielded, obviously, some follow-up questions about why and what does Mickey do well, and the, the one thing that Brody Van Wagen has mentioned was keeping the clubhouse together, which is worth something. Uh, I, t- I tend to think that managers overall get too much of the blame when things are going poorly and too much of the credit when things are going well, um, so a lot of the important stuff that a manager does is behind the scenes that reporters, that fans, that other members of the public don't really see. Um, uh, as far as what he did not do well, uh, I think there are plenty of instances in which his in-game decision-making was, was odd. Um, and I think he wasn't a very good communicator, too, you know, in terms of um, communicating expectations and reasons even with his own players in the clubhouse there were a lot of instances uh throughout the year where mickey would say one thing and then the player would say the other or say he hasn't heard that from mickey whether it was ahmed rosario and robinson 
know, getting benched, or Edwin Diaz in the closer's role. It just seemed like there was a uh, strange lack of communication a lot of times, uh, you know, when it came to certain certain things. And there's also late in the season with Noah Syndergaard and then Ramos, uh, the situation there, you're, you're battling for a playoff spot, and you have Syndergaard complaining about who his catcher is. Yeah, that was a, another weird, weird episode, beginning with whoever leaked it out. Um, you know, Syndergaard's frustrations, I thought, were, were fair, uh, just in terms of preferring to pitch to a catcher who he seems to have a better rapport with. Um, so that, that, that was a weird one. And frankly, and in the moment, I thought, okay, maybe the Mets are setting up, uh, you know, a, a trade of Syndergaard this offseason. But last week, at, or last week, Brody Van Wagen came right out and said, you know, Noah Syndergaard and Edwin Diaz are going to be on this team next season. So uh, maybe I'll save everybody from the half-love trade rumors this year. As we talk here, here on this Tuesday and the podcast we posted Thursday, it appears you know, Joe Madden is going to go to the Angels to manage them. Uh, you know, rumor has it Joe Girardi has an interview scheduled with the Cubs. So who do the Mets go after? Do they go after someone with experience? So obviously Mickey Callaway did not have managerial experience. He was a pitching coach in Cleveland. Do they, is it time for them to go after someone with managerial experience? I, it, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. I think with, from, what, from the fan reaction that I can tell, and really that's just a small local minority perhaps on Twitter, but um, it seems that a lot the pendulum has swung back toward preferring an experienced manager. Um, I, for one, don't really buy into that as a prerequisite for this job. Um, just because it didn't work out with Mickey Calloway um, doesn't mean all first-time managers are going to be bad at the job. Look at Aaron Boone or Rocco Baldelli, Alex Cora in recent years. Um, that said, if the Mets do prefer a experienced manager, I think Joe Girardi is a no-doubt top choice. I think Joe Girardi is also interested in the Mets job specifically, aside from a general desire to get back into managing after two years off now. Um so if they go the experience route, Joe Girardi should be the pick. That said, I think there are a couple of interesting dark horse candidates who don't have that experience. For one, Luis Rojas, who has been with the Mets for going on a decade and a half. He's been a minor league manager in their system for, for a long time, and this past season was the quality control coach doing a lot of um, the data digesting, helping the coaching staff and the players uh, kind of apply the, data, the vast amounts of data available to them to something digestible and applicable and usable. Um, so he's somebody who knows the organization very well, managed a lot of the current Mets players on their way up through the minors, and uh, has never managed in the big leagues, but has obviously managed for you know eight, eight or nine seasons in the minors. Um, and then there's the Carlos Beltran. That's a buzzy name right now. I am less confident in that, but he's a he'd be an interesting candidate for sure. I guess because I mean, the season of reports that players respect a guy like Carlos Beltran who's played in the majors for a long time. But again, that manager not having that managerial experience is a lot different than being respected as a player. It is. It is. It is. Um, yeah, I mean, resume wise, as a player, it, it rarely gets better than Carlos Beltran. Um, what he did with the Mets, obviously, is, uh, you know, well-known. Um, 
good relationships with a couple of Mets executives, and you're right in that he's, he's not very far removed from being a player himself. Uh, I don't, I, I don't know where that stands right now. I should put it that way. Um, but he, he is an interesting dark horse candidate for sure. I'll be at one. It would be very much a nervous that running the game. It seems that the job of the manager has changed over the years. I mean, I, I go back to the days of, you know, I'm 50, 55 years old. I remember managers would go gut feel and all the, you know, the pitching changes were few. Now we have all these analytics and, you know, they, they basically tell the manager how to manage the game. Help me, how has that changed the manager's job over, the, uh, over time? I think a lot of people would say that it removes a lot of the human element or, as you said, the gut decision-making uh, from from the job. Uh, I, these days, there are, there, there's so much data available, and it's up to the manager in the moment on the bench to decide, okay, this is the data. Does it match up with what my eyes and what my gut are telling me? And some teams, some managers will just blindly follow the data. Um, and other teams, you know, it, it's got to be a mix. And I think that the teams that do it best, the managers that do it best, are the ones that um, try to blend the two, make sure the two align. Um, but, but you're right in that the job absolutely has changed considerably over the past, even just the past decade or two, as balls really embraced the data, the data boom. Um, you know, since you know, since since the Moneyball book came out uh, 17 years ago. Um, but uh, you're right, the manager job has changed, and uh, that, that's what's made it interesting in terms of across baseball, seeing these first-time managers like Mickey Calloway was, like Roe Hofstra Beltran would be, like Aaron Boone is in the Bronx, House or in Boston. Um, you see more and more guys jumping straight to manager jobs, and all these respected veteran managers or managers trying to come through the minors um, that's not necessarily the clear career path if you want to be a big league manager, in part because the job has changed so much due to data. Tim, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at Tim B. Healy. That's T-I-M-B as in boy, H-E-A-L-E-Y. Well, Tim, I appreciate you a few minutes talking about the uh, Mickey Calloway and the Mets situation, and uh, we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Before I asked Jim Duquette about Callaway and the Mets, I asked him about his years playing baseball for Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Duquette was a standout baseball player for Williams. Jim, thank you for coming on the podcast to talk about the uh, Mets situation with Mickey Callaway. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Ken. But before we get into that, uh, you were a star baseball player at Williams College the, uh, near just across the uh, border in uh, Williamstown, Mass. Did you ever Come over to the Capital Region to play Union and RPI. Uh, you know what we did? We did play. Uh, we played both. We played RPI. I think we played RPI uh, every year, and I believe we played Union uh, like twice in the, in the four years that I that I was on the team. Uh, RPI, you know, RPI was a sleeper team. They we you could take them lightly. Uh, you know, b- back then they didn't have the strongest records overall, but. Uh, they generally had a, a team that um, 
you know, you, you had one almost like any other team that if you have one good pitcher, you can you can keep yourself in games and win a few few uh, games as you maybe that didn't expect. And we always seem to to run into like a crafty lefty at RPI and, and that would shut us down occasionally when we would uh, when we take the trip over to RPI. We usually had a better better time of it when they came to our place. Yeah, that's uh, good. Yeah, I mean, how much did you enjoy your time at Williams College? You know, I still have such great uh, memories and a fondness for the for the campus. My son uh, is there now, playing on the baseball team. He's a sophomore, so I've gotten up there a little bit more recently uh, over the last couple of years. Um, and my family uh, siblings are still up there too. So I get a chance to get up there. It's such a beautiful a beautiful campus, and and uh, you know, of course, anyone going to college, you have great relationships. But that you know that the group that we had, the baseball team in particular, uh, was a special group. And so, yeah, it's, you know, the roots of my career as a baseball executive, I felt like were kind of groomed there on the campus. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the uh, situation with the Mets. Mickey Callaway gets fired a few days after the end of the regular season. Uh, did he deserve to get fired, uh, or did the Mets make the right move? You know, it's, it's a tough one. I, I feel for I feel for Mickey. He's such a good guy, and in that position, it was a tough one. Yeah, you know, it wasn't it wasn't perfect. You know, no no manager is it wasn't perfect on the on the managerial front. I mean, the, uh, if you look at some of the things that there were, that went well, I mean, he he improved the team uh, over ten games from the year before, nine games from the year before. So. You know that, and, and what you could argue was trending in the right direction. And there are several young players that grew under his under his leadership. So those are the positives. I think if you you look at it, two two things that I think probably caused him, uh, you know, his his uh, being let go. And I and I understand it from the organization side. They had expectations to win the division and to go to the postseason. And that team was, I think, you know, the bullpen had its problems, but. It was built to be a postseason type team, so you came up short, I think, in in that area. And I'm not, I'm just not so sure when it comes to you know the the growth that you had, you know, in that in that area of working the bullpen, um, that you saw a lot of it as much as I think that uh, they wanted, and as much as the new general manager wanted, and Brody Van Wagenen. So, you know, when you look at uh, you know Brody was there on a regular basis, he had the best view and the best analysis. I think those things combined, even though they didn't really say it, I think you could kind of read read between the lines a little bit and and, um, and argue that that was probably the area that they saw was the, was the weakness. And in New York, you know, you, to me, the next manager better have a, a, a really good skill set and the ability to grow into that, into that job when it comes to handling the pitching and handling the bullpen. It seemed to me if there was a time to let him go, it would have been right around the time, uh, late June, with the incident involving uh, Newsday reporter Tim Healy. Uh, it, you know, Jason Vargas never really apologized in the brief statement he made to the press the next day in Philadelphia. Um, Mickey Calloway took two press conferences to get one apology out of him. Uh, would that have been, and then of course, then they got swept by the Phillies in that uh, four-game series, and then they basically it seemed like a, a rudder will ship at that point. It's, why didn't uh, uh, Brody pull the tw- trigger back then? Yeah, I think there were a couple moments that you could have, you know, that was one of them earlier in the season uh, when they were really struggling under 500, went down to Miami, got swept. I think that that, that series was in May. Um, 
you know, and, and you know, those are two points uh, where you could have argued they, they made a change there. Um, I think I think what from the organization side of things, you know, you know the Mickey the <laughs> Mickey making that decision, not apologizing out of the gate, and then having the second press conference. Um, you know, they they in my mind they had a little bit longer leash than I think I would have had in that particular situation. But making a change in the middle of the season is is really difficult to do. So. I mean, I can understand. I don't think that helped him at the end of the day. You know, when you when you kind of added up all these things, uh, I don't think it was the reason why he was uh, let go. But I do think that that um, probably contributed those two those two. Uh, well, the incident in particular that you're talking about in Philly. Yeah, and then well, then they get on a hot streak, and all of a sudden now they're they're in a playoff hunt. I mean, they're in the wild card until uh, basically the last week of the season. Why didn't that save his job? Is it because you, what you said earlier? Because they were built for the postseason. I, I think that's you know how how you know when you kind of view it as that this is a postseason team. They didn't get there again. This is this is from the front office perspective. Um, I didn't necessarily think as you watched the season unfold that it was a team going to get there because the bullpen was so short in the number of uh, a number of pitchers that they that they had that they could rely on. Uh, so, you know, I think it's a little bit unfair uh, to judge them in that, in that sense, but I think internally the organization felt like it was a club um, that was built to go to the postseason. And and so I think that's that's the viewpoint. It's really it's really more I think subjective than objective. I'm sure you know they have their own objective data too that would suggest that it was a postseason type like a caliber team. And you can't argue with the fact that they that they put like you said had a really good run the second half. I I would argue that it was primarily uh, the weakness of the schedule during that stretch. You know when they played some of the really really good teams. Uh, especially a home series where they had nine nine games nine home games in a row against you know the, some of the best teams in the game they ended up getting swept uh, I think it was a six game losing streak and that really knocked them out of contention at that point um, so I think that was more of a barometer of the of the level the caliber of the team at that point of course when Mickey Callaway is hired by Sandy Alderson uh, he, he, Callaway had no managerial experience he was a pitching coach uh, with Cleveland now. Does Van Wagenen go after somebody with experience like I mean, Joe Girardi, uh, Buck Showalter? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting because you know, generally when um, when you have when you make a change with the manager, a lot of a lot of times you're, you're feeling it's hard it's hard to uh, not go in the opposite direction of what you thought. So if you thought that. You know, in lack of experience and maybe you know, let's say a lack of uh, success on the you know, we'll call it the X's and O's of the of the baseball side. So, you know, move you know, uh, managerial movings, double switches in, in National League baseball the brand that you're looking for. You know, out, out of a manager, you, know, you if you didn't if you felt like you were short in that area, your tendency is to try to find somebody, you know, that is really good at that. Um, you know, and almost the other end of the spectrum. I, I think what this group seems to seems to have is an open mind to any candidate. So not just the experienced guys and, and what you hear the names Joe Girardi and and uh, and Buck Showalter and that whole group. Maybe Dusty Baker, uh, potentially John Farrell, uh, but but also 
the other end, the inexperienced guy that, but but the the kind of up and coming potential manager Joey Cora or Carlos Beltran. We've heard a lot of Carlos's name mentioned. You know, trying to find that new aged guy that um, you know the Red Sox were so successful in getting Joey's brother Alex, or uh, you know even even Rocco Baldelli recently with the Twins. Like some of those new guys, newer guys that you've seen come on the scene. So you know that's the challenge. Is, is you know. Where are they going to end up? You know, that's hard to predict right now. But I think going into these interviews, it's important to have an open mind. And I think that's 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 what it sounds like they're going to do is, you know, kind of cast a wide net. Which, if you were in season, it would have been really hard to to do that and and get you know all of the candidates and try to flush them out. Finally, I mean, how important is it to have a manager who has a thick skin and can handle? We know the New York media is tough. I mean, how how important is it to have a manager to be able to maybe handle the criticism that's out there? Well, I, I can tell you uh, firsthand, it's you know, it's not it's not diff- it's not easy to handle that um, certainly, and I think that uh, has to weigh into it. Uh, it's maybe not you know at the top one or two, but it might be third. If you're you're looking at criteria and come up with eight to ten, uh, you know, pieces of criteria that you look for in a manager, handling the media um, and you know, speaking, because you're, you're talking twice a day, every day for the entire season, uh, there are a lot of potential traps along the way that can get, your, can get you into trouble, either personally or with your own players or with the organization. So finding a guy that is adept at handling that is is pretty important, and you know it's it's a different it's a different um, market obviously than most others. So it's not as much of a factor uh, when you look at it with other teams. But I think if um, you know the Mets are looking at it objectively, and I know they are, uh, that ha- has to come into play. And you know if it if it he doesn't have a, the the next manager doesn't have that experience, they're going to have to give him a crash course in it. Jim, where can people find you on Twitter? So on Twitter and on Instagram, uh, Jim underscore Duquette, and uh, and uh, that's that's the main way. I'm trying to grow the Instagram. It's a, it's always a challenge. So I'm, <laughs> I'm doing that. Twitter's been been good. I love Twitter too, but uh, Instagram is uh, also the same the same uh, handle. Okay. Well, Jim, appreciate a few minutes, and uh, we'll talk soon. I appreciate you having me. On. Thanks, Ken. My thanks to Tim Healy and Jim Duquette. Up next, I'll have interviews with Monday's Coaches versus Cancer Basketball. You're listening to the Party Shots Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe today. Hi, this is Hunter Moffitt, founder and CEO of Trophy Case, the app created for athletes by athletes. Our app is a community connecting like-minded athletes, families, and sports affiliates for their specific needs. Positive form of social media designed for long-term success. We have a template for users to easily curate, track, record, and grow their statistics and social multimedia content in one digital profile. Create, connect, and promote your brand. Think Instagram for athletics. Notable Trophy Case team members include Dan Nolan, President and CEO of Hugh Johnson Advisors, owner of the Albany Empire, who says, Trophy Case is an innovative platform that has great potential for athletes. Nolan said, The feedback and experience brings value to athletes, parents, and sports affiliates in one network. I simply think of this as a combination of Instagram and LinkedIn for athletes. 
You can download the Trophy Case app at the Apple Store and Google Play. Send us your feedback. Trophy Case, the app created for athletes by athletes. Get it today. Hi, this is Harborside Hal Wafer. I'm the manager of the River Sportsbook at Rivers Casino and Resort. Now, it's always a winning bet to listen to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the Parting Shots podcast. Monday night was the 14th annual Coaches vs. Cancer Basketball at the Albany Capital Center. Patrick McCaffrey and Joseph Girard III were honored at the event. McCaffrey, now a freshman at Iowa, was diagnosed with pediatric cancer while his father, Fran McCaffrey, was coaching at Siena. Patrick beat cancer, and he discussed it with reporters prior to Monday's event. I mean, it's, it's very important. It's something that I take a lot of pride in, you know, being able to kind of use my story as a way to maybe give kids motivation and just kind of inspire, like, another generation of kids who maybe went through a similar thing that I did. So it's something that I think is really important and something that I'm going to definitely use throughout my years, and especially as my, if, if my, my platform continues to grow, just being able to inspire more and more people to kind of overcome the same things that I was able to overcome. So I think that's very important. What was the, your mental state like as a kid? You hear you have cancer. What, is, what was your first thoughts? Um, you know, it's, it's obviously a really scary thought. Like, I mean, when you hear cancer, first thing you think of is like, well, am I going to be able, like, am I going to be able to live? Like, am I going to be able to still act like a, and still do the same things that normal kids do? And for my situation, yes, I was still at, well, I mean, I had to take some time off, before, but then I was going to be able to make a full recovery and be back to where I was before. So you're just worried about your health short term, just being able to, you know, just being able to be a normal kid and just have your childhood back, which I was, which I was able, fortunately, I have to get back and just not affected anymore. But yeah, that's definitely scary thoughts at first. How important is not only raising money, but just raising awareness for, for cancer? Very important. I feel like a lot of people know what it is, but I don't think, like, because, like, honestly, in my life, I've never encountered somebody who hasn't, like, been around, like, at least been affected in immediate family, like, or somebody, like, in their life hasn't had cancer. So, you know, it's just the more awareness and the more money that we get, so the more we can research and the more we can, you know, kind of figure out a way to beat it is, is very important. Any parent is always tougher on their kid when they're coaching. Mm -hmm. I would imagine beating cancer, there's nothing your dad can say to you on a basketball court that's going <laughs> to intimidate you. Yeah, I, mean, I guess not. I mean, just kind of, you know, just kind of knowing where I've been, there's nothing that really intimidates me anymore. I've seen the worst. So just being able to be where I am now is just is really good for me, and I'm really excited. Did you guys get to go over to the campus this afternoon, and what kind of memories from your dad's days? Oh, a lot. I, remember, I, remember, I saw the vending machines, and I, I, probably, I probably at least $1,000 into the vending machines machine when I was a little kid and none of it was mine everybody else would go, go all over by borrowing all types of money scrounging for whatever quarters whatever I could find but yeah I mean it was it was very, it was very, you know, kind of walked on memory lane. A lot of it's different. Like the new, the practice gym wasn't there. The, the arc was there, but it looked different. But, you know, just got to walk in the mag where I played a million games in there with camps and all that. And then, yeah, just like walking through the offices and a lot of it, a lot of it was renovated. A lot of it looks nicer, but the, the main, like the building itself looks the same. So that was, that was really cool being able to see all that. Coach Carm said he remembered, you know, you always running around, always wearing superhero yeah. capes. And he said you were always a superhero. Mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, I think some people will probably look at you now and feel like you're a real life superhero someone who's been able to do this and kind of overcome it mm -hmm. um how how much has it changed you um it's a great question uh it definitely it just changes the way that i look at life you know it just kind of 
just kind of makes me understand that you know you can't really take anything for granted. Everything like you know, no day is guaranteed. Just so try to make the most out of every opportunity that I'm able to receive. So yeah, I think that's probably the thing that I was able to get the most out of. Just being able to take advantage of every day and just take advantage of every moment with friends, family, with everything, and just being able to just enjoy life. What does it mean for you to be here to receive the award? Uh, it means it means a lot. You know, just being able to be recognized for this, just knowing that like what I went through, and just kind of being able to you know have another like have a, again another platform to just be able to spread awareness and get the word out there do we need more money and just kind of be able able to figure out a way to beat the disease. Fran McCaffrey, who's now coaching Iowa, also talked about his son. Oh, there's no question. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, we played in the first round of the double-A tournament uh, the the day of his first surgery. And uh, we lost in overtime. We flew home, celebrated his 14th birthday that next day. And then he came home, and it wasn't until the next day that we knew that his tumor was malignant. We were hoping it was still benign. Uh, Had we won that game, I would have gone with the team to North Carolina, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, you know, been there that morning because we had to wake him up and tell him, which is something no parent ever wants to have to do. So it was just meant to be that we would be there, and he's fought an incredible fight. Uh, One of his dear friends got cancer at the same time and he died at 15 and that was really hard for him but uh, you know I think he's incredibly appreciative of all the folks that are going to be here tonight for this purpose and he recognizes now you know you raise money and you try to help other people but sometimes you know you're that person you're on the other side of it I used to speak a lot for coaches versus cancer then all of a sudden I'm up there telling our stories a lot different. Joseph Gerard III lost his grandfather to cancer. He spoke about that, plus his preparation for the Syracuse basketball season. And uh, the biggest thing that came out of it for me uh, was watching him never give up. And uh, just seeing that and seeing the you know resiliency that he had to fight with it, the toughness that he had to fight with it, it kind of carried it into my mind and say, okay, if he can do this life or death, I can do this on a basketball court or a football field. Uh, you know, I'm not facing life or death right now. And uh, if I can translate and have his mental toughness on the basketball court or football field, I think I'll be all right. And I kind of, you know, just grasped that and, you know, took it into what it, for what it was worth. And I think that definitely helped me. You obviously have a platform here mm-hmm. in the capital region. Um, when you were asked to be part of this yeah. event, was, is there any part of you that yeah. says, Look, in my freshman season, I'm going to be already at practice. It, this is going to be a lot for me to undertake. Yeah, I mean, I, it's always great to come back to the capital region. Um, I, like I always have said, uh, even when I was playing back in Glens Falls, it's always good to give back to those who support you. And uh, even coming back here, receiving an award from my grandfather, it's at the same time I'm giving back to the community and just want to see you know everybody back here, see a lot of my family, connect with them, uh, my friends, and just you know being here. It, it's always home and it always will be. And uh, any chance I can get, I'm always going to want to come back. So how's life so far at Syracuse? Life's been great. Uh, you know, I'm working my butt off. Coach McNamara, the rest of the staff, Coach Beheim, uh, you know, they've been pushing us and making us go hard each and every day. And uh, to say the least, it's a different lifestyle. Uh, you're going from about six in, 6 in the morning to, you know, potentially 6 or 7 at night uh, and you're not seeing your bed again uh, for that long. But, uh, you know, you got to go to class every day. You got to go work out every day. And uh, it's just different, uh, to say the least. What's the biggest transition for you on the court? Yeah, on the court, it's just definitely, you know, the, the game speed. Uh, I mean, here I, I, I've done it in UYBL, but at the same time, uh, it, it's 
a lot of getting used to playing with, you know, not even against the other guys who are just like you, but even playing with the guys who are just like you. Not to say that I didn't have fun playing here, but, you know, I love these guys and I love everything about them, but it's a whole different level. And uh, I kind of had to, you know, mentally readjust what my, my focus was, even more so than, you know, the physical aspect of it. Joe, did you ever cross paths with uh, Patrick McCaffrey? Yeah. I've actually known Patrick since the third grade. Uh, when his dad was here in Siena, he used to play on the City Rocks back when we were in third and fourth grade. And I played on another local team, and we would play against each other. Uh, but actually, since then, I just this past year, I played in the Capital District Classic, uh, you know, All-American game, and he was actually on my team. So I got to re, you know, connect with him uh, in other previous camps, like the CP3 uh, All-American camp when we were freshmen, the, the Rising Stars camp when we were sophomores. So there's been a lot, and I've seen him a lot, and you know, to see what he's done and overcome what he has and to be the player that he is today, it's amazing. You guys talk about what he had to overcome and... and uh, yeah, I mean, I try not to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I try to avoid it as much as I can and whenever I'm around him, just try and be positive. Uh, but, you know, I always, you know, give credit where credit's due. And he, he's battled it all. He's been through it all. And you know, he's a great player. Now he's playing for his dad at Iowa. Uh, we'll see them December 20th. And, uh, you know, I've joked around with him here and there about it. But, you know, he's a great kid and it's a great family. And uh, I've always, you know, loved connecting with those guys. Syracuse assistant coach Jerry McNamara was there, and he talked about JG3. Well, I think early on, too, especially as a player, when I first came to Syracuse, Coach Beheim has been you know, very involved with the Coaches vs. Cancer event, and obviously with Joseph getting the award tonight, it means a great deal for us to be able to, hear, to be here to support him. So uh, it's kind of the best of both worlds. We get to support our guys, show them how much we care, how much we're proud of him, and at the same time get to support a great event. Was there any hesitation for you guys? I mean, he's a freshman leaving school for a night um, to come back here and do this. Well, we planned accordingly. Um, we, uh, we, we were, you know, Joe, his father, you know, let us know well in advance that this was going to be the night we were going to do it. So we kind of planned our schedule to have a day off today and, um, you know, make sure Joseph was here to accept this award. You know, we're proud of him. and. Uh, we knew it was important, you know, and, and obviously to get to honor his grandfather and be here to, to see that myself, you know, it was important for us. Coach has to travel to ACC Media Day, so he couldn't be here. So, um, you know, it's we planned well in advance for this one. How has Joseph looked in the practice so far? He's looked terrific. You know, uh, everything that everybody up in this way has, has seen over the last few years, we're getting a chance to see firsthand now. Um, the competitive nature, the ability to shoot. I think uh, he's going to surprise a little bit of how many plays he can make off the dribble. That's something that obviously not everybody got a chance to see him on the summer circuit like we did. Uh, so we believe that he can do a lot of things with the basketball as well. How much was that summer circuit helpful for him? I think it's huge. You know, it's huge not just for him. I think anybody that's coming from high school and uh, getting a chance. The circuit he played on is, is arguably the most equivalent to college basketball, the EYBL circuit. And, um, you know, for us to get a chance to see him along with his teammates play against the best of the best, um, it's a great barometer. Where do you want to see him grow? Decision making. I think the next step for him is, you know, obviously you have to. A lot was required for him, I think, in, in high school for his team to be successful, which in a lot of ways is a good thing because you get to expand on your game and, and be creative. Um, you know, we talked a lot about not turning the ball over in transition. We want to be able to capitalize in transition and taking care of the basketball when we have opportunities four on three or, or five on four or three on two. So, uh, all, all an adjustment period. I think the, the, the biggest thing when you get, I'll never forget the transition I had to make as far as the speed adjustment. So, um, you know, he's, he's picked it up pretty well. He's so physical. He's, he's a lot stronger than most freshmen. Um, and he's got a high IQ. So, you know, we anticipate him being a quick learner. Coach, back to you of yourself a little bit because that comparison that everybody naturally tries to make. Yeah, a little bit. You know, um, for me, it's been, it's been nice, you know, not just 
to see him as a player, but to get to know his family. And, and you know, it's been a long recruiting process where you get to know these guys over, so you develop relationships. And uh, reminds me of my hometown, Glens Falls, of, of my hometown of, of Scranton. You know, very close knit. Um, you know, people care about each other, support one another, and. Um, yeah, I saw a little bit of that. You know, uh, reminded me a lot of how I grew up and how I was supported by my hometown. I know he was, and that was very important to him. Uh, I've seen how he goes out of his way to be very appreciative of the fan support that he has and stays after games. We talked about it on the radio, staying after games and you know making sure everybody gets attention when when they want it. So uh, you know, I've seen how he acts with little kids and. Um, you know, someone that's a role model in this community. He's, you know, he's representing himself and his family very, very well. My thanks to those gentlemen. Coming up, we're going improv as I talk with Colin Mockery, one of the stars of Whose Line Is It Anyway, and his appearance Friday at the Event Center at Rivers Casino and Resort. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe today. Hey, pro football fans. It's time again to match which with other pro football fans and win a prize by playing the Daily Gazette's You Pick'em Football Game, sponsored by River Sportsbook. To play, go to dailygazette.com football and make your picks before the first game kicks off each week. If you have the most weekly points, you earn a $100 gift card to ShopRite. Play every week and you can win the grand prize of $1,000. Play the Daily Gazette's You Pick'em Football Game, sponsored by River Sportsbook, at dailygazette.com slash football. Hi, this is Daily Gazette sports writer Mike McAdam. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette associate sports editor Ken Schott. Back on the Parting Shots podcast, and as I said a couple weeks ago, I like the time from time to uh, go from sports to pop talk, pop culture. My next guest is one of the stars of the improvisational comedy show Whose Line Is It Anyway, which is on the CW and reruns can be seen on Up TV. On Friday, October 11th, he will be appearing at the Events Center at Rivers Casino Resort with the show Colin Mockery Presents Hip Prov. Please welcome a great Canadian, Colin Mockery. Colin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Ken. Well, I appreciate you coming on for a few minutes here. Um, as I told you right before we went on the air here, I mean, I, uh, I enjoy watching you on uh, uh, Who's Line, and I, I'm impressed with the way you guys come up with material what we, with uh, what you guys do. Uh, I'll ask you some questions about Who's Line in a moment, but let's talk about your appearance in Schenectady. You're going to be working with uh, Master Hypnotist uh, Assad, and if, I, if I'm if mispronouncing his last name, uh, it's Mechie or Mech- Meshi? It's Mechie. Mechie, okay. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's a show that combines uh, hypnotism with improvisation. I mean, that sounds like fun and yet could be dangerous. Where did that idea come from? It's absolutely terrifying. Assad um, was taking uh, improv classes at Second City, and he thought, oh, it might be interesting to combine hypnosis and improv. So he contacted me through my agent. We got together. I thought, oh, this sounds very scary, so let's do it. Um, so we, we are. Uh, basically, he asks for 20 volunteers, he hypnotizes them, whittles it down to the best five, and then they and I form an instant improv troupe and do an improv show. I mean, what's the, funny, what's the funniest thing you've seen done by the, uh, an audience member or this group that uh, who have been hypnotized? Uh, they just get so intense, some of them. <laughs> they're, they can go two ways. They can get really intense, or it's almost like they're stoned. Everything is slowed <laughs> down. We've had some funny stoned people do characters. 
but you know every night is totally different and there's just no telling what they can do i always before we we started doing the show i would say to Assad, so if i asked him to do this will they do it and he would always say i don't know it depends <laughs> on the subject they might and they might not so there's no point at this show where i can go oh i can just relax here and just walk through it it's just i'm constantly in panic and survival mode <laughs> maybe is there a concern sometimes maybe somebody doesn't come out of the hypnosis and they're stuck in it <laughs> uh nope <laughs> eventually uh, but uh, Assad's really good at getting them out as soon as the show is over they're immediately out and i always you know talk to them and say so what do you remember and some don't remember any but uh, about 90 percent say oh yeah, I remember everything. It's just everything you and Assad said sounded like a really good idea. <laughs> well, people obviously can probably, you know, with uh, video with their phones, they can probably tape it and you know, their friends can show them what they did. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. So, do you get a chance to be hypnotized? I haven't. I keep, I keep thinking maybe I should get Assad to hypnotize me. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Well, Colin, you're no stranger to Schenectady. I mean, you've performed uh, with Brad Sherwood, another uh, um, participant on Whose Line Is It Anyway, a few times at Proctor's Theater. What do you like about coming to Schenectady, and how have the audiences been? I, I have to say the audiences have been great. I love the Proctor's. It's a great theater, perfect for what we do. It, I mean, it's big, but it also has an intimacy about it, which is great for improv or uh, hip-hop shows and the audience reaction has always been uh, just great we feel loved in Schenectady and it's also one of my favorite cities just to say <laughs> it's a, you, you ever tried to have a tough time spelling Schenectady I mean I sometimes I when I first moved up there I always thought there maybe was a Z in Schenectady for some reason I always think there is too <laughs> There should be. <laughs> I know. I guess at the start of movement, put a C in Schenectady. <laughs> well, Kyle, let's talk about Whose Line. You've been on that uh, the show since it started on British television. Uh, you, uh, Wayne Brady, and Wayne's going to be uh, in town right about a week or so after you. And uh, Ryan Styles of the regulars. I mean, there's a good chemistry between you three, and it seems like you guys have a lot of fun. Is it as much fun as it looks? It is. Um, I, I wish I could say it's a lot of hard work, but it's like one of the best gigs ever. We show up an hour before the show, we make up crap, and then we go have a drink. <laughs> it's really, and it, it's like two weekends out of the year, so it's not a, a large commitment. Um, so we don't get on each other's nerves. It's always fun to see each other because we, we basically, that's the only time we see each other during the taping of that show. Yeah. Oh, I particularly love when you do the weird newscasters, especially when you come up when you're the anchor and you come up with some names that I mean, I just it blows my mind. Uh, and then, of course, some of the headlines you come up with are truly amazing. But how do, how do you do it? I mean, is there? I know it's. They say there's no preparation, but is there? Is there some kind of side? I do you guys have some sort of idea what you're going to do, or or just you just wing it? All we know is uh, we know the games that we're playing, and that's uh, pretty much it. But the thing with improv is you. When you're when I'm doing the first scene, that's all I can remember. I I have no idea what's happening after that. It's just because, I, as I said, you, your mind gets into a sort of survival mode. That's why none of us ever really remember what the sh what we did during the show. Mm -hmm. There have been times where I'm flipping channels. I'll see a, a who's line, and I'm watching myself, and I have no recollection of of the scene. I have no idea where I'm going to go in it. It's uh, it's a weird phenomenon. Well, one particular show that I mean, still cracks me up every time I see it is when Richard Simmons was on. 
uh, the Living Prox segment was just ultimate classic. I mean, Rich, let's face it, Richard Simmons doesn't shy away from who he is. Uh, and it was just hilarious. I mean, you know, Drew Carey, the, the host at the time, was falling off his chair. The audience was in hysterics. What was that taping session like? I mean, I recall you, you know, you had, you know Richard Simmons was a jet ski and you were on him and then you cut off him and start smoking a cigarette. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to say that was probably one of the funniest scenes that's ever been on television. They actually had to cut down the laughter because there was like a minute and a half of just audience laughing while Richard's head was bobbing up and down by my crotch. Um, but, uh, you know, God bless me, he never improvised, but he was just so committed to everything, which is really what you want uh, in an improviser. So um, that was the scene that did, I, I do remember well, <laughs> just because of the circumstance of it. But, uh, yeah, that's the one that uh, people always say, oh, if I'm trying to get someone to watch Who's Line, that's the scene I always show them, just to give them a taste of what it was like. And then, and then of course, the Richard embracing Wayne Brady on the, on the floor there, just that was just... It was just truly memorable television. I, I, I still enjoy it. I mean, I, I've seen it two or three, at least two or three times, and it's still uh, really, really gets, I can't help but just crack up. Yeah, it's, it is a fun scene to watch. It never gets old. Yeah. Uh, who were your influences growing up? Oh, God, anyone who made me laugh. Uh, you know, I'm a bit older. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, uh, I was big, you know, Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton. I wasn't there at the original uh, showings of their movies, but I, I became a fan. Uh, you know, Dick Van Dyke, Jack Benny, then Monty Python, mm -hmm. uh, SCTV, uh, Sid Caesar. All of those guys influenced me in uh, some way. I would watch the show, shows and see, oh, that's how you make someone laugh. And then I basically steal stuff from them. Yeah. I mean, is doing improvisational comedy more fun than scripted comedy like a, in a sitcom? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I like the fact that you are your own boss. If you suck, it's because you sucked. If you're good, it's because you're good. With scripted, um, so many there's so many factors. You know, you have, you're trying to get the writer's intent about the producers who want to get their input in. You got the director. You have executives from the network. So everything can get. Um, you can get a lot of different notes from people, that, and it really affects what you do. With improv, everything happens right away, and it's certainly much more forgiving than a scripted uh, thing is. I'll, I'll ask the obligatory sports question since you are a proud Canadian. Yeah. I mean, uh, was, was, did you ever play hockey? Was sports of, of any part of your life uh, important to you, or just was uh, being, being comedy uh, was that the more important thing? No, I'm a, I'm a, a big hockey fan. Uh, and the hockey season started last night, so I, I watched the Maple Leafs win, which was uh, great. Uh, I never played hockey. I never played hockey. I was one of those uh, players who they would say he gives 110% <laughs> because the skill level was like three. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. My, my son played it for many years. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I, my, my, I grew up in Philadelphia back in the days of the Broad Street Bullies. And all I, we, uh, my, I didn't still have to skate till later, but I was, a, I was a mean street hockey player. Well, oh, I was... I'm very good at street hockey. That yeah. was my strength. But there was no professional league to follow up on. Yeah. <laughs> well, tickets for the Kalamaki Presents Hip Hop are at start at $20. It can be purchased online at riverscasino and resort.com. 
tickets.proctors.org or at the Proctors Theater box office. Doors open at 7 p.m. and the show begins at 8 p.m. Colin, thank you for coming on the Party Shots podcast. This was a blast and I am truly honored to have you on. Oh, thank you, Ken. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, guys, Colin Mockery, back in a moment on the Party Shots podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Hi, this is Hunter Moffat, founder and CEO of Trophy Case, the app created for athletes by athletes. Our app is a community connecting like-minded athletes, families, and sports affiliates for their specific needs. Positive form of social media designed for long-term success. We have a template for users to easily curate, track, record, and grow their statistics and social multimedia content in one digital profile. Create, connect, and promote your brand. Think Instagram for athletes. Notable Trophy Case team members include Ron Jaworski, former NFL quarterback and founder of Jaws Youth Playbook, who says, Throughout my success in the sports world, I believe Trophy Case can bring value to many different levels of athletes and unrepresented sports. This platform will level the playing field for athletes at the beginning of their career with technology for generations to come. You can download the Trophy Case app and the Apple Store and Google Play. Send us your feedback. Trophy Case, the app created for athletes by athletes. Get it today. Hi, this is Albany football coach Greg Atuso. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette associate sports editor Ken Schott. Back on the Pointing Shots podcast, I'm Associate Sports Editor Ken Shot, and I'm joined by Sports Editor Mike Kelly for his weekly appearance to talk high school football and the uh, five games to watch this weekend. Mike, let's start with last day with the CBA against the uh, Shen team that really come off a great, great effort against Gilmore. Yeah, this is a big double-A matchup with, uh, you know, I mean, CBA got off to the great start, um, you know, kind of come back to the pack a little bit. Coming off a win, though, against Saratoga, closer than maybe you'd expect. Um, Shen, like you said, coming off a, a big win at Gilderland um, that really solidified their spot uh, in the double-A standings. Yeah, CBA only won by a point 2019 over Saratoga. That's kind of was kind of surprising considering Saratoga is yeah, struggling this year. Yeah, you know, and that's – it's one – you look at it, it's – you know, you – you know, if you're uh, – if you support CBA, you would have liked to see that be a little bit of a, a larger margin. At the same time – um, Saratoga Springs, that was, you know, a must-win game to a degree that they probably had an extra edge to it. Um, with this week's matchup, um, I, I'll, I'll take Shen at home. Um, and this is a, a huge game, though, for CBA. Um, only four teams make the playoffs. If they lose this one, they start to look like maybe they'll be uh, on the outside looking in. Yeah, at that crossover week, I guess. Yeah. Crossover week. <laughs> Class A, Avril Park with a uh, you know, tough loss to Troy. They're taking on Amsterdam team that uh, took care of uh, Green Tech 51 nothing on Friday in this Class A matchup here. Yeah, and Amsterdam's kind of a team that I think most people forgot about because they've missed the playoffs the last couple of years. They lost in week two to Troy, and, you know, I think a lot of people just thought, you know, kind of same old, same old as it's been these last couple of years, but they've won now three games in a row. 
um, and get a real great shot to, to make a statement uh, Friday night on their home field. And Peyton Osfeld, you know, player with a broken left wrist, is, you know, ran for three touchdowns against uh, Green Tech. Just been remarkable the way he can play with that broken wrist. Yeah, apparently you you break a wrist, you become faster. That's what I've <laughs> taken from uh, from watching the the you know just the, the box scores pour in through there. I do think Avril Park wins that game, um, but these are two teams that over the years have you know combined to produce some really wild, wacky games. Um, that that would be one that you know it could be a it could be a low scoring affair. It could be one in the fifties. Uh, either way, it should be fun. How important is it for Avery Park to bounce back after the loss to Troy? Huge. You know, I mean, they're now headed toward you know, let's say they win this week. Um, they're headed toward what we talked about last week, which is the two seed from that division has to host in the first round of the playoffs either Queensbury, Burn Hills, or Boston Spa. Um, so they need to immediately start building momentum because also looming for Avril Park is their non-classification game, which is next week against Shenandoah. Um, you know, so if they lose this week, you know, they're looking at trying to avoid a three-game losing streak with one of the best double-A teams uh, coming to their field. Well, let's look at Class B, a Skylarville, a Cobble Skill um, in the power rankings. I mean, they're still the same, Skylarville 3, Cobble Skill 4. Yeah, and we've kind of been waiting for this game to see if those power rankings are ever going to change. <laughs> um, you know, two, you know, both teams that lost to the the top teams in their division earlier in the year, and they've kind of, you know, we've kind of known they're going to be the two seeds um, in their divisions. Um, the game doesn't mean a ton in terms of the standing, or it doesn't mean anything in terms of the standings. It doesn't really mean a whole lot. Because um, these teams probably don't see each other again down the road, but this is a momentum game for both sides. Who are you picking? I'm going to take Cobble Skill, even though I've had Skylerville above them. I like Cobble Skill at home. Okay. Class C, uh, the Indian Bowl, McKettigville, Stillwater. Yeah, you know, and this one makes it onto the games to watch because every year it's a game to watch. But this is, you know, these two teams have gone different directions this year. Um, this is one where you'd expect Stillwater to win big. Um, I do expect Stillwater to win. Uh, the rivalry game is really the only reason, though, to think that this maybe will be close because, um, you know, McCannville's coming off another loss. Stillwater's coming off a really nice win out uh, against Warrensburg. Um, just two teams that seem to be going different directions. Speaking of Warrensburg, Class D, they're hosting Chatham on uh, this weekend. Yeah, you know, so Chatham at Warrensburg, I think before the year, we would have thought this is a Super Bowl uh, preview. Um, we get to week six. I think we still feel that way. Um, Warrensburg, you know, probably the interesting thing is we just mentioned Warrensburg's coming off that loss to Stillwater. Um, you know, not the way you'd want to head into, (laughs) uh, you know, this big rivalry game. Probably the interesting thing with this one is the D's, um, four teams make the playoffs. It's a classification, which appears to have, you know, three teams that are pretty good. Um, so the loser of this game, Chad Warrensburg is going to end up playing Whitehall in that semifinal, um, so, you know, it's, it's a big game from that perspective of you don't want to have to play Whitehall in that semi. Well, the class D power rankings, uh, Warrensburg, Chatham, Whitehall, Corinth, uh, Fort Edward and Helderberg Valley, no change there. Um, class A, uh, hold on one second. Class, yes. I'm taking Chatham. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> I'm taking Chatham. Yes. My bad. <laughs> so what about the class, uh, the power rankings, the class double A power rankings, uh, even though Gillen lost, you kept him at three. Yeah, I mean they've beat they've beat Bethlehem. Um, Bethlehem has beat. Uh, or, I mean, you know, Bethlehem's had a nice year. I, I don't see them jumping above Gilliland though. 
you know, just with that head-to-head win the way it was. And I thought, you know, Gilliland and Shen, that score ends up being, you know, semi-lopsided. Um, tied at halftime, really close game through the first, you know, two quarters. And Gilliland had some injuries, some, some personnel issues um, in the second half that kind of limited them. Um, you know, I think at full strength or relatively full strength, I still like Gilliland as the, the third team in that class. Yeah, Shaker was still one, Shen two, Bethlehem four, and CBA five. Class A, the big change there. Troy and Avril Park switch spots. Troy goes from five to two. Avril Park goes from two to five. Yeah, you know, and it's just, I mean, literally, like you said, I mean, Troy beats Avril Park. We flip them. Um, still think Queensberry's the the top team in that class, um, you know, through these first six weeks. Um, but again, you know, this class, we say it every week, th- those five teams are, you know, they seem like they're above everybody else. Maybe Amsterdam this week can, can show that there's six teams um, that are, you know, really all relatively even. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, that, that group, you can order them how you want and uh, not a whole lot of argument from me. Class B, same, same as it ever was. Just according to the talking head, same as it ever was. Claims Glens Falls, Holy Trinity, Skylerville, Coleskill, Shalmont. Yeah, you know, I, and that one again. I mean, we're likely headed toward Glens Falls, Holy Trinity. That's how it feels. You know, probably the most interesting one. The, uh, you know, in terms of a, a playoff game before that, it's going to be Holy Trinity versus Skylerville. Um, but you know, Holy Trinity and Glens Falls just have a lot more firepower than everybody else in that class. And in Class C, a change. Uh, Fonda and Greenwich switching spots. Greenwich goes from uh, four to three. Fonda goes. I'm sorry. Fonda goes from. Uh, Four to three, and Greenwich goes three to four. Yeah, Greenwich, all they did wrong was uh, win fourteen nothing this last week. But now, just Fonda at this point um, still undefeated, um, and they also benefited from Fonda has beaten Watervliet this year, who this past weekend beat Voorheesville. Yeah, Watervliet goes five and Voorheesville yeah. out. Yeah, so that win starts to look a little bit nicer for Fonda too, and um so yeah so i mean they move up but again that's one that after you get through stillwater and cambridge that three through five three through six really um pretty difficult to separate yeah stillwater remains number one cambridge salem remains uh number two well mike appreciate a few minutes we'll we'll do this again next week we're starting to get closer to the end of the regular season yeah we're almost there unbelievable it just goes by in a flash it got really cold though in a hurry so We're so, ready to be inside. Yes, it's time. So, <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. That's Sports thanks, Editor man. Mike Kelly. And we'll be back to wrap up the Party uh, Shots podcast in just a moment. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Hi, this is Daily Gazette News columnist Sarah Foss. Once again, I'll be going head-to-head with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott with my weekly NFL picks and defending my championship. Go to dailygazette.com slash blogs. And look for my picks on my Thinking It Through blog. You can find Ken's picks at dailygazette.com slash sports. Back to wrap up the podcast. And as Sarah said, look for her NFL picks along with mine at dailygazette.com. I still have a five-game lead over Sarah as we both had another rough week during week five. For the second straight week, we each went eight and seven. I'm 48-29-1. Sarah is 43-34-1. Also, Look for my blogs on NFL and college football TV coverage this week. You can find it at dailygazette.com slash sports slash parting shots. Well, if you're a college hockey fan, look for my weekly ECAC hockey face-off selections at dailygazette.com slash sports slash parting shots. You can participate in the face-off selections by emailing them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, 
at dailygazette.com. Union Hockey beat writer Mike McGadden joins me on the next Parting Shots podcast that will be posted on Friday. We'll look back at the Dutchman's 0-2 start to the season and look ahead to this weekend's two-game series against Northeastern. If you have questions about Union Hockey, Mike and I will answer them. You can send your questions to shot at dailygazette.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I'd like to thank my guest, Newsday Mets beat writer Tim Healy, Sirius XM's MLB Network Radio Power Alley host, and SNY studio analyst Jim Duquette, Iowa basketball freshman Patrick McCaffrey, and his dad, Iowa coach and former Siena coach Fran McCaffrey, Glens Falls High School football and basketball standout, and Syracuse basketball freshman Joseph Gerard III, Syracuse men's basketball assistant coach Jerry McNamara, comedian Colin Mockery, and Gazette sports editor Mike Kelly. The Party Shots podcast is brought to you by Trophy Case, the app created for athletes by athletes. Download it today. Available for iOS and Android users in your app store. The Party Shots podcast is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe today. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot at dailygazette.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Slapshots. The views expressed in the Party Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Party Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. Good day, good sports.